0: You know, we Christians have mixed feelings about this whole Christmas celebration, the seasonal celebrations. On the one hand, you could say that we are exuberant about the birth of our Savior and, and that Jesus gets all of this widespread acclaim this time of year. Um, even the world is singing glory to the newborn king. Um, on the other hand, so much that surrounds us cheapens The celebration, does it not? You see, some people celebrating the season just purely materialistically, or with something worse—drunkenness or sensuality. They they clearly demonstrate that they do not understand the reason for the season. Uh, Because if they did, they'd be worshiping in holiness, right? Frankly, those of us that know Christ, we have a personal relationship with Christ. We know that He is exceedingly more impressive than anything else that the season might um, display. All of the holiday trappings can be fun and glorious, but they pale in comparison to Christ. The true meaning of Christmas, everyone says, what's the true meaning of Christmas? The true meaning of Christmas is this, the incarnation of God, the incarnation of God. The eternal creator God, who made everything that we can see, became a true human being and walked with us on this planet, right in the flow of human history. just boggles your mind. He came down, took on human nature, and the eternal God, who spoke everything into existence, walked among us. Well, i tell you what, Santa and Rudolph and Frosty the snowman can't hold a candle to that. And when you really understand that, you realize, of course he's the main event. What could be more exciting and thrilling and mind-boggling than that? We are coming today to a small portion of the Bible that really summarizes all that the birth of Jesus accomplished. It's not a Christmas passage, so to say. It looks beyond Christmas and what happened to this baby who was born? What did he accomplish? What did he do? Why was Jesus's birth so important? And this text of Scripture, this portion of the Bible, will answer that question for you. It's because of who Jesus really is. It's because of what Jesus accomplished. We are in Acts chapter 10, and we are going to be looking at verses 34 through 43. Would you open in your Bible there? I'm going to read that portion for you. Acts chapter 10, Verses 34 through 43, it's kind of a weird name for a book, Acts. You know, what was that about? It's the Acts that the Holy Spirit did through the apostles at the beginning of the church of Jesus. And if you can't find Acts, just find the New Testament. The first four books uh, are the Gospels, and right after the four Gospels comes the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. I'm going to read it, follow along uh, if you have turned there. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. We're going to stop there. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, I know how it is. If you forget everything else that I said, please remember that. Everyone who believes in him receives what? Forgiveness of sins. Why is the birth of Jesus so important? Because of all of this that followed Jesus' birth. That baby boy born in Bethlehem is God's greatest gift he ever gave to the entire world. That's not an exaggeration. Jesus is a gift, is he not? Isn't that what the prophecy said in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6? What does it say? It says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be what? Given to us. A son will be given us. He's a gift. How about John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is God's greatest gift. I can't see you guys over here. Sorry about that, but I'm looking at you. He is the greatest gift that he ever gave to the world. You know, most people would rather God just give them $10 million and be done with it, right? God, if you really want to give me the kind of gift that I would stand up and take notice of, the kind that might bring me back to church a little bit, just, just have somebody drop 10 million smackers on me, and uh, that'll do it. Jesus refuted that philosophy when he asked the probing question, what will it profit you if you gain the entire world and forfeit your own soul? And the answer is, it's not going to gain at all. And that's why God doesn't give foolish gifts. You know, sometimes people open up gifts, and it's a really, really good gift, but they're not all that thankful for the gift because they're not all that wise, and they don't really see the value of the gift, right? What is this, Mom and Dad? Why are you giving this to me? Well, love is wise. Love, isn't, love doesn't just give people what they want. Love gives people what they need. God knows what you need. He made you He knows the predicament that you are in, even if you don't. He knows the judgment that is coming on the world. He knows what he's going to do to the world. He knows the future. He knows the condition of your mind and heart. And he's going to give you the gift you need. And that's what makes it so precious and so valuable. He gave you Jesus Christ. You know, I think even the Beatles figured out back in the 60s, a generation ago, that money can't buy you love, right? If you lose yourself, you lose everything. That is why the smartest people in the world get down on their hands and their knees, and they say over and over again, thank you, God Almighty, for Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. I am not ashamed to say, He is my Savior. That is what Peter is declaring to a house full of non-Jews, they're called Gentiles, to Cornelius and his household here in Acts 10. Now, we have a whole series of messages leading up to this point in time to let you know why This breakthrough of preaching the good news from Jews to Gentiles was such a huge event and why all of chapter 10 and all of chapter 11 in the book of Acts and actually even chapter 15 rehearses the importance of this and you listen to all those messages. I'm not going to take time to go over that ground with you uh, this Christmas Sunday, but just know that it's very important that a Jewish apostle is preaching to these Gentiles how their sins can be forgiven and how they can know the Jewish king. The theme of this little mini-sermon of Peter, the theme of this sermon is Jesus. (laughs) That's the theme. Uh, What did Peter preach to Cornelius? Answer, Jesus. What did Cornelius and his entire family end up believing in? Answer, Jesus. Who can you receive today that would allow you to be right with God and have all of your sins forgiven? The answer in church is always Jesus. Jesus, 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 precious Jesus. Jesus is not only God's greatest gift that he gave to the world, Jesus is the message that God wants you listening to. What has God been doing for the last 2,000 years? I'm going to sum it up for you. Sending out people into the world to keep preaching Jesus Christ. Why? So you would listen, so you would hear, so you would believe, and so you would pass on the message. That's what's been going on in this church age, the age of the Holy Spirit, the age where we are in the new covenant. That's what's been going on for 2,000 years. That's what God is doing. He's bringing more and more and more people into his kingdom in a spiritual sense before the full visible kingdom is showed. And Jesus comes back a second time, breaks through the clouds. Every eye sees him. Yes, even those who pierce him, it says in Revelation. And he will come and bring the full visible powerful kingdom to earth and it will be populated only by those who believe in this baby in this Jesus. That's what he's been doing. Jesus is God's message. The big question is, are you listening? Are you listening? I pray you will. I pray this Christmas Sunday you listen very very closely. Now, what did God say about Jesus? Well, we have here very nicely presented for us in summary fashion by Peter and the Holy Spirit five excellent truths about Jesus. That's our little outline for today. Five excellent truths about Jesus. And God just breaks it down so easy for us here. We're just going to follow it and uh, learn. Jesus is the message. What do we need to know about Jesus? Well, here are five excellent truths about him. First, Jesus is the message that God wants everyone to hear. In other words, he's the message for everybody. That's in verses 34 through 36. Notice it says, "...opening his mouth, he began to proclaim the good news." Right. he he started speaking. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He's talking about nations. He's not going to be partial just to the Jews now. He's not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears God and does what is right is welcomed by God. Peter is realizing this. Peter the Jew is realizing that God is not Partial, he's not exclusive. God will receive anybody from any nation. Do you have Asian background? God will receive you. Do you have African background? God will receive you. Do you have European or South American or Australian or maybe you're an island or I don't know where what did I miss? Antarctica or something like that. (laughs) Hang out with the penguins. If you are from any part of this world, God will receive you. If you are fearing Him and ready to do what is right. Every nation, or we might put it this way, every people's group, God welcome. If they come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the caveat. Those that fear God and do what is right is not trying to say that they're following some other religion and they're doing their own little good works and so God accepts them because they're following another religion and doing good works. Not at all. The whole context of this sermon is Cornelius needs to hear about Jesus so that he can have everlasting life, so that he can be welcomed by God. In other words, Cornelius and all of the family with Cornelius, if you want to be received by God, listen to Jesus. In other words, you're coming to hear Jesus because you fear God and because you want to do what is right. In other words, I'll put it this way, if your heart is genuine, then listen up. Believe in God's Son, and God will not turn you away. No matter who you are, if you are coming in the name of Jesus, believing in Jesus, God will receive you. Why will he receive you in the name of Jesus? Because Jesus is his only son. No matter who you are, God will receive you. So maybe someone's even listening today and you're of Hispanic background. You're, you're Arabic. You are from wherever. You're from Europe. You're from Asia, as I said. You've been here your whole life in America and, you know, you go back hundreds of years and you're American, maybe you're Native American. The point is, the good news was meant for all the nations. That's the point of it. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 11, it quotes the Old Testament Psalm and says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, who are Gentiles. Gentiles are everybody that are not Jews. So 99% of you are Gentiles out there, okay, if you were kind of wondering that's who you are. It goes on. It says, let all the peoples praise Him. God doesn't want you praising other gods by other names. He wants you praising Him, and He wants you coming through His Son. You know, I like Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 because it kind of looks at the end of human history when even the, uh, the tribulation period is already underway, and everybody is, all the people have been saved. It kind of looks at it, and you see this heavenly scene And it it is praising Jesus as the Lamb of God because it says men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation got saved. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so he would purchase who? Purchase people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, we have samples from everybody around the globe that get saved. The good news is for everybody. Do you know how far and wide, even in the first century, those 12 apostles traveled to bring the good news about Jesus? Well, a good, educated guess studying the best that we can would be they made it all the way to India one way, and they made it all the way to Spain the other way. And they made it pretty far north as well, and they went into northern Africa. And who knows, they may have gone further. We don't really know where they stopped. It's amazing how far they took The gospel in the first century, and it's been going and spreading ever since then. If you want to know why Christians are always talking about Jesus, (laughs) always having to stop and tell people about Jesus, the answer is because Jesus wants His Word to spread, right? The message is too good to keep to ourselves. He tells you so you will understand it. By the way, work at understanding the message, right? Perfect it. Study it, go to your classes, learn, learn all the skeptical objections to believing in the Bible and believing in the resurrection. Learn about that, get educated, and then what? Spread it, right? Get it out. Get it going. Look at what the message entails here, verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching, and I like how it says this, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What is this message? Well, it's a message of peace. That's a message that started with the Jews. When Jews greet one another, what do they say? They say what? Shalom, peace, well, wellness to your life. I mean, who doesn't want peace? First, Jesus brings us peace with God. You can't really have peace between the nations and peace between people until people are reconciled back to God, Right? When you're brought back and you have peace with God, you know that you're no longer at odds with him and his plan, that your sin has been covered, uh, you're no longer awaiting the judgment. When you're brought back into the right relationship with God, now you can have peace with your fellow man. And we do gain peace with fellow man. By the way, when you have that, you also get peace inside your own heart. Isn't that what the angels proclaim? I think we just sang about that, right? It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, and they quote this wrong all the time, by the way. They quote this wrongly. They say, on earth, peace among men. But but that's not what it says. It says, peace among men with whom God is pleased. For the rest, they're never going to get peace. The the point wasn't to bring peace apart from Jesus, as if if we're all going to drink Coke, you know, Coca-Cola, and hold hands, and we're all going to have peace. It doesn't work that way. When that gets tried, it falls apart, right? But in Jesus, there's real peace. Look around in here. Don't we look a little different? So there's peace among those who God is pleased with, who come to him through his son. Jesus brings the peace. Jesus said so. In John 14, he said, peace I leave with you. He was talking to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. The world has a peace. I'm not talking about that kind of peace. I'm giving you my peace, he said. And now Peter is telling these Gentiles, even though Jesus is the Jewish king, he brings you peace because he's Lord of all. Notice it says he's Lord over all. You know what the word Lord means, right? Kurios, one that is in authority, one who has the right to command and tell you how to live and what to believe. He is the one set in authority over all of mankind. Everybody has to deal with Jesus. He's the one in authority. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has absolute authority over all people. He has authority over people whether they acknowledge him or not. He has authority over you whether you want to bow your knee and confess that now or not. You could be stubborn and rebellious. One day you'll still have to acknowledge that. How do I know that? Because the Bible prophesies that. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they're in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, that Jesus Christ is, uses the same word here, Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you confess Jesus as your personal Lord, guess what? You now bring glory to God. Yes, the Christmas carols that are sung everywhere make note of this. They talk about how the message of Jesus is for everyone. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Angels Sing says, light and life to all he brings. Notice the universal message, right? God rest ye Mary gentlemen declares to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. See, we all need the message. That's the first beautiful and excellent message. Truth about Jesus. The second excellent truth is that Jesus lived the perfect life. Let's take a look at verses thirty-seven through the beginning of thirty-nine. Jesus lived the perfect life. That's the second excellent truth. Verses thirty-seven through thirty-nine. I'll read it again. Verse thirty-seven. You yourselves know. Now remember, he's appealing to people that are in Caesarea. This is outside the land of Israel, and he says, "You yourselves know the things which took place throughout all Judea." That's a province starting from Galilee, that's another province, after the baptism which John proclaimed. What John is he talking about there? John the Baptist. Not too hard, right? Verse 38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Verse 39. We are witnesses of the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Stop there. So Peter begins all of the good news about Jesus with Jesus' life. Jesus was famous. Jesus was famous even in the first century. Jesus was famous even in the first part of the first century. As Peter points out, knowledge about the life of this uh, Jesus of Nazareth was widespread. By the way, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would later appeal to King Herod of his knowledge of everything that John the Baptist had done. He said, you know about this. You know because everybody was talking about John the Baptist's ministry and then following John the Baptist's ministry, everyone was talking about this Jesus. Why? Because he was healing everyone and casting out demons. How could people not talk about him? People outside of Israel knew his hometown of Nazareth. They knew the miracles that he did in Judea and Galilee. They knew about all of that. Jesus' life was noteworthy. By the way, Jesus' life still is noteworthy. Can I ask you this question? Who ever lived like Jesus lived? I mean, who ever lived like? Take any religious leader, any philosopher, and put their life next to Jesus. There's nobody that comes close to living like him. Here, Peter points out that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he went around doing good, traveling all through Israel, that he healed all who were oppressed by the devil. God was with him, obviously meaning that God was with him in a very special way. The four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life were all written in the first century A.D. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. By the way, despite... What you hear from the dishonest media, this time of the year particularly, those four are the only eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. All of the other so-called gospels that the church rejected that you should read, they're all from the second, third, fourth, fifth century. In other words, none of them are eyewitness accounts. Well, then how could they tell us about the life of Jesus? That's a very good question. They, they make up stories stories. That's why the church rejected them, because they weren't genuine history. The church wanted truth. The church wanted historical fact. The people who knew Jesus recorded the four Gospels. Matthew is one of the uh, 12 of Jesus' disciples. Mark should really be called the Gospel according to Peter, because Mark got all of his information from the apostle Peter. Luke is the only one that himself was not an eyewitness, and he tells us at the very beginning of his gospel where he got all of his information. He says, I went and I interviewed all the eyewitnesses. I think he interviewed Mary. I think he interviewed a lot of people, and he wrote it down in a more Greek kind of format, the way kind of Western minds think. And then John, John was the last apostle to live, and he was the youngest at the time of Christ, and he wrote his gospel last. These are the guys that saw Jesus. These are the guys that walk with Jesus. They wrote down what they saw and what they heard. They saw Jesus walk on water. They didn't make the story up. You know, people that make up stories, they embellish them. You read the stories of Jesus' miracles, and they're very much matter of fact I mean, like, they just, like, they just wrote what they saw and what they heard. They wrote down that he turned water into wine. How did he do that? They didn't attempt to explain it. They just said it was water, then it got scooped up, and then it was wine. That's, that's how you record something you can't figure out, right? He, they recorded that he multiplied loaves and fish. Some kid, some kid has a lunch. There's 5,000 people in the wilderness. Jesus blesses God, and the fish keep reproducing. How does that work? Ain't nobody that can tell you how that works. He healed 10 lepers instantly. He healed the paralytic, got up and walked instantly. He cast out demons, threw them into the swine, and the swine went crazy. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He cured that woman that was constantly bleeding, just reached out and touched his garment. And Jesus said he felt power go out of him. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He cursed a, a fig tree and it withered. <laughs> How does all that work? They didn't know. They just wrote down what they saw and heard. John, at the very end, and it's fitting that this comes at the end of the last gospel, he wrote in chapter 21, verse 25, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, (laughs) he did so much good and so many miracles. Peter was an eyewitness. Peter was among some of the most privileged human beings ever to walk this planet. I mean, if you studied the life of Jesus beyond this summary uh, sermon that that Peter is giving here, it would be easy to conclude that the life of Jesus stands out as the greatest life lived ever. And there's no comparison. You look at uh, all of the beautiful stars and the planets in the nighttime sky and you say oh look at that one! Oh, look at this one it's so beautiful and it shines but you don't see any of those lights during the daytime when the sun is out right because they're all eclipsed by the bright shining sun you get the point right there are many luminaries in the history of man but when you put Jesus in the sky he shines so brightly you can't even see the other people they can't hold a candle to him he is the Son of God. Next to his life, everything pales. H.G. Wells, you heard of him? He, uh, he commented, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of human history, end quote. He had a brain, he figured it out. Philip Schaff, a renowned church historian, eloquently writes this, "'Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined.'" Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Ah, the life of Jesus Christ. J. Sidlow Baxter, a pastor in England and Scotland in the previous century, really hit the nail on the head when he wrote this. Fundamentally, our Lord's message was Himself. He did not come merely to preach a gospel, He Himself is that gospel. He did not come merely to give bread, He said, I am the bread. He did not come merely to shed light. He said, I am the light. He did not come merely to show the door. He said, what, you got it by now. I am the door. He did not come merely to name a shepherd. He said, I am the shepherd. He did not come merely to point the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Again, the Christmas carols, historically, have been saying this for centuries, if you didn't know this information. Uh, Hail in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. The message is there for you to reach out and take it. Even one of the Christmas cards that we received this, uh, this Christmas season said it so plainly. God's loving plan, it says. God had a plan to live among us, to share hope and offer salvation, to make the ultimate sacrifice for all of us everywhere. The plan was Jesus. The time was Christmas. The reason was his love. Amen? Man, everybody should know that. That's the message that God has for us. His life, his life was perfect. Third, Jesus died for us. You could even say that Jesus was born in order to prepare him to die. You might say that the, the birth is just sort of the beginning, you know, but he was born to die. He was born to die. And a lot of people say, I'm born, I want to die. But Jesus came into this world to die. And Peter really just gives a summary here. He just says, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Now, he's just emphasizing the historical fact that Jesus died. And I think there's a tinge of injustice in those words, too. How unjust it was that they put him to death. How how could he live such a noble life? And then they put him to death. He went around doing good, and they took him and killed him. You could see the injustice in that, right? Hanging him on the cross obviously refers to crucifixion. Crucifixion. Crucifixion involved roping the victim to a post or a tree. In many cases, hanging him by nails as well. And there the victim would hang for hours, sometimes for days, publicly humiliated. And Acts 5, verse 30 confirms this. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And here Peter was preaching to the Jewish leaders and he said, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. You did it. It's not saying all. That's not an anti-Semitic comment. It's talking about the Jewish leaders of that generation. Peter himself was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. You, you, you have to read that in its proper context. A cross, a cross. Uh, uh, I, cancer is a terrible disease. There is no worse way of dying than dying on a cross. It's a terrible form of execution. It's like the Romans went out and said, how can we find, and the Romans, I've been told I'm not a Roman historian or anything like that, but I'm told they didn't really invent too many things, they just conquered everyone else who invented stuff, and then they tended to perfect it. So the Carthaginians in northern Africa from Carthage, you know, they had a background with crucifixion, the Greeks had used it, but the Romans took it and perfected it. I mean, it involved hours and hours of intense agony before dying. It was a slow, agonizing death. The Romans wanted it that way. They would take them and sometimes line the road, the road with all of their victims. If there was some insurrection, there, you'd have hundreds of these crucifixion victims lining the roads. It was intimidation. You want to rebel against Rome? This is what happens to those who challenge the power of Rome. Of course, the Roman governor himself, Pilate, knew Jesus was innocent. He said it several times. I find no guilt in this man. He washed his hands and said his blood be on you and on your children. He said it to the Jews. He wanted nothing to do with this. His wife had even had a dream where it said Jesus was innocent and she came to Pilate and said, have nothing to do with this righteous man. He knew. And his trial was a sham. It was a Political stage. That's all it was. So, really, his death amounted to murder murder of an innocent man. But God had foreordained that's what's going to happen because God had determined to put him to death because he needed to die for us. You know, people know that the cross is an important Christian symbol. You go by a church, at least traditionally, you'd find a cross. Nowadays, it seems some churches are ashamed of the cross. You know, you wear it around your neck. You might have a cross around your neck today. Uh, If you're willing to roll up the sleeve or whatever, you might have a cross as a tattoo, right? And, And many people understand that. The cross is a Christian symbol. Some people hate the symbol. Not as many people understand what the death of Jesus actually accomplished. A lot of people are like, oh, poor Jesus. Oh, Jesus suffered badly. Oh... You know, I try to identify with Jesus, and they really don't get the meaning of Jesus' death. Of course he suffered. That's sort of obvious to anybody. And Peter is just summarizing. He doesn't really give the meaning of the death here. We need to lift our gaze off of the the baby in the manger, you know, and look at the same body grown up and now bleeding and dying on a cross with a, a crown of thorns, driven into his his skull. And you need to look there and you need to see that Jesus was paying a penalty to God for our sin. Our sin. The meaning of the cross of Jesus in the Bible can be summarized with two words, and I want you to remember these words. They may not be all that pleasant, but I want you to remember them. Write them down, think on them. Penal substitution. Penal substitution. Penal is a word that refers to paying a penalty. In America, we have penal institutions like prisons, right? And substitution, well, we understand that word. We've understood it since second grade when we had a what? A substitute teacher, right? <clears throat> and we took advantage of it. <laughs> penal substitution means that Jesus paid the penalty of death on the cross, and he was not paying for his own sins, because he had none. Listen, Jesus did not simply die. All people die. Jesus died as a substitute for us. In fact, as I said, Jesus was born to die. He came into the world on a mission. He came to offer up his body, his life, an absolutely perfect life lived. Nobody else lived as perfectly as him. He lived one perfect life, and he offered up his body as a sacrifice for sins. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his own kind of love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That little for us part there is so important. As sinners, we are the ones that should have been punished by God. In fact, if any sinner decides not to put their trust in Jesus and die and go into eternity without the Savior, they will be punished for their sin. Hell is real. But he, being innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God, a sacrifice to be punished for us. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 exhorts us walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. There it is again, for us, substitution. 1 Peter 2:24, write that reference down and go look at that one. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, penal substitution. Being punished for our sins to pay the penalty for sin a ransom had to be paid a ransom a ransom is the payment price for sin that God required it was required of Jesus that he give up his life because the penalty for sin is what death so Jesus couldn't just trickle out a little bit of blood on the cross he had to pour All of his blood out until he was what? Until he was dead. Because the blood was the life of the flesh. And when the life of the flesh was poured out, then the life was poured out. When the life was poured out, the ransom was paid. And God received it. Jesus knew he was doing this. Of himself, he said in Mark 10, 42... Even the Son of Man, that's a title he gave to himself. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a what? A ransom for many. One life to pay for many lives. First Timothy 2.6, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. In that context, it means all who will believe. Why do we have to believe in Jesus to be saved? Because nobody else paid the ransom price. And if someone did, it wouldn't be good enough. they go and give their life for you and God would say, they have to give the life for themselves because they too sin. Jesus is the only one that was innocent and could give his life for someone else. And because he was not just a human being, but God, he could give his life for all. Silent Night speaks of this. In that beautiful carol, it speaks of the dawning of redeeming grace. You know what redemption is? Redemption is being bought back by a ransom price. The first Noel in the last verse says, With his blood mankind hath bought. He paid the price for mankind. My friends, listen to God today. Today. This could be not just another Christmas for you, but your new birthday. You could be like this guy Cornelius and get delivered from the penalty of sin right now. Do you think you will escape the penalty of sin by trying to be good? You won't be good enough. Do you think you'll escape the penalty of sin because you listened to someone that told you in some false way, some false way to God when God said, no, the ransom price has to be paid? Listen to God. You could be born again, like it says in, O little town of Bethlehem, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin, and what? Enter in, be born in us today. You have to be born again. Well, the fourth beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus was raised from the dead, Jesus' resurrection. And Peter brings that up in verses 40 and 41. Look at verse 40. God raised him up. You'll never find the apostles preaching the gospel and leaving out the resurrection. Don't forget to tell people Jesus was raised from the dead. Too many times people go, what's the gospel? And you ask people, what's the gospel? Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I believed in him, and now I'm saved. You forgot the resurrection. (laughs) The apostles never forgot the resurrection. God raised him up on the third day. Notice this is historical. On the third day. And granted that he become visible, not to all people, everyone wishes they got to see Jesus so they wouldn't have to exercise faith, right? But not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Oh, so it was easy for Peter to believe he got to see Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, but Peter had to give up his life for that testimony. Well, Peter lays out here, again, only in summary fashion, the evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection. In the first century, there was no refuting the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. The best explanation they came up with in the first century was that Jesus' disciples came and stole the body. Remember that one? And how would they know if you said they were sleeping? Hmm. Well, that didn't fly, Hundreds, hundreds of people in the first century not only saw Jesus' risen body, but in many cases, they got to do what Thomas wanted to do. That's my name, so I never forget that. Doubting Thomas, right? I'm not going to believe until I what? I touch it. I got to touch it and see that he's not a phantom or a ghost. And he got rebuked, by the way, by Jesus. They got Not one time seeing him, people talk about, oh, well, they hallucinated and so on. No, they got multiple times where they got to see Jesus on multiple days. It was an audiovisual event for them, and they got to touch him. They got to eat meals with him. You know, people who deny the bodily resurrection today, they sound so smart, but they do so in the face of overwhelming evidence. So-called modern scholars try to sweep away the entire New Testament saying, well, that's in the Bible, I can't believe it. You ever had that trouble? You start giving someone a Bible, that's in the Bible, I can't believe that. Why can't you believe it? Because it talks about supernatural events, and I can't believe any book that believes in supernatural events. So let me me get this straight. You're trying to decide whether or not the resurrection of Jesus happened or not, but you won't believe anyone that tells you supernatural events happened. You're prejudging the whole thing. You're arguing in a circle. You said if it's supernatural, it can't happen. Well, that's the whole question, isn't it? Was Jesus raised from the dead? The eyewitnesses said, yes, he was raised from the dead. How do you know? Because we saw him. We ate with him. We touched him. We heard him. And they were not lying. How do you know they were not lying? Because they died for what they said they believed in. They died violently in many cases for what they said they believed in. Church history talks about that just consider briefly here the historical nature of what you just read. Luke is recording Peter's sermon to Cornelius. When did that sermon happen? Five to eight years after the resurrection of Jesus. That's it. Just five, eight, at the most ten years after the resurrection of Jesus, this sermon was recorded. And where is it recorded? In the book of Acts. When was the book of Acts finished being written? Answer, 61 AD. Just 30 years after the resurrection. People say, well, this idea of Jesus being raised from the dead, it's, it's myth and it's legend. You can't get myth and legend in 30 years. That's impossible. People dismiss it without even thinking. It's just like Peter states it here. I mean, Peter stands there and says, I'm an eyewitness. I ate with him. I drank with him. And people come along hundreds, nay, thousands of years later and say, we have now concluded with evidence that Jesus was not raised from the dead. So I'm going I'm to believe you, hundreds of years removed from the facts and not the eyewitness account? Who doesn't believe eyewitnesses? People that have already prejudged that something supernatural can't happen. That's not an open mind, people. I would suggest that unless you have firsthand information about the death and resurrection of Jesus, you ought to keep your opinion to yourself because those who were there say otherwise. Their testimony is united. Their testimony is consistent. Their testimony is early. Their testimony is strong. It's detailed. And so far, it's irrefutable. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the resurrection is the mountaintop of the Christian faith. It's the mountaintop, not the birth. The most important Christian message is not Christmas. The most important Christian message message is easter indeed if you read your gospels correctly they start with the events around christmas right but where do they end easter all four of them frankly without the resurrection of jesus christmas would never have been celebrated as a holiday and you wouldn't have even heard of it jesus is not in a manger any longer he's not on a cross anymore We believe in a risen Savior. Say, now it sounds like Easter. Well, I'm glad it sounds a little like Easter. And I want to say to you, you can be saved today. You can be. Just like Cornelius was. He and his family are listening to this message. And as they're listening, before Peter even gets to conclude the message, notice no invitation to come forward and pray some fancy prayer up front, right? Right? They're not water baptized. Before any of that happens, they're just sitting and listening. And inwardly, what's going on? And they're believing. And immediately, God testifies to them. That's in the verses that follow. The Holy Spirit immediately comes into their life and testifies that they're saved. And Peter picks up on that. You can be saved right there in your seats as you're listening to the message about Jesus. And you believe. You say, can't be that simple. It is. There is nothing special about anybody that gets saved and is now a Christian. You can believe right where you are. Be saved and forgiven of all of your sins right now. I'll give you a verse that proves it. Romans 10, verse 13. Write it down. Go look at it later. Romans 10, verse 13. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, in other words, you're bowing to his authority, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, not you got a pretty good chance of being saved, but you, is a promise, you will be saved. And yes, the Christmas carols also speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Hark the herald angels sing, has this one refrain on it. Born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth. How could Jesus' birth raise the sons of earth, the sons of earth that are dead and buried and in the ground? How can that happen? Because after he was born, after he lived, and after he died, he was raised from the dead. He has that power. I got to linger on this a little longer. There is no other religion that actually proved that religion was the truth other than Jesus, other than Christianity. If you follow Islam, you get to follow a dead prophet. And their religion says he's dead. You can visit their grave all you want. His grave all you want. The dead prophet's grave, Muhammad. They never even claimed he was alive from the dead. If you follow Buddhism or, frankly, any of the philosophies or religions of the East, you have zero proof that anything that they're telling you is true. They just said that they are enlightened. If you want proof... There it is, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Study it, analyze the testimony. Many people have, many skeptics have, and they've come out concluding this evidence is irrefutable. Jesus Christ beat death. That means something to me. That means something to me. I may be facing death soon. You may be facing death before me. You don't know what will happen to you. That means something to me. When you just project yourself to that hour you are laying there on your deathbed, you say, Pastor, now you're starting to pull on our emotions. No, it's going to happen to you. You know it's true. You project yourself into that future, and you're laying on your deathbed. Who's going to console you? What hope do you have laying there? What message are you going to believe there? I'll tell you what I'm going to believe. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's what I'm going to believe. Amen. I'm assuming all that clapping's for God and his word. If you can clap, I can stand. One last point, number 5. I know I'm out of time, but you're going to hang in there, right? Fifth and last. This message has eternal consequences. This message is so important it has eternal consequences. Now, whether or not you are an Eagles fan or not, Brian, that does not have eternal consequences. There are a lot of messages that you can take it or leave it. This is not one of those. And He ordered us, verse 42, please look at it, He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Verse 43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives what? You don't get forgiveness of sins because you're water baptized or because you do something special in the church or because you donated money to the church or blah, 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 you believe, you believe, and you receive full forgiveness. Can you think of all the sins you've committed? No, you can't, because some of them you don't even want to think about. Some of mine, I know I've buried. I ain't bringing that back up again. But let's say I forgot one, he hasn't, and he paid for all of them. That's why they were commanded. Parangelo is the Greek term there. They were commanded. It's it's too good of a message to just say, hey, if you have time, go out and share it. They were commanded. Actually, the King James Version says commanded. Ordered is the NASB. We have to get that message out. We're under divine command as well. Well, what do you have here? You have two paths laid before you as we come to the end here. With two very different outcomes. He is the judge of the living and the dead. What does that mean? That means everyone that, that lived and died, they're the dead. And everyone that is lived and is still living and is not dead, they're the living. So you got the living and the dead. That encompasses what? Everybody. Who's going to be the judge of every man, woman, and child who ever lived? The answer is, it's always the answer in Sunday school and church, the answer is Jesus. He will decide the eternal destiny of everyone. And how will he decide it? Based on whether or not you gave your life to him or not. If you kept your life for yourself, then he'll judge your life the way you lived it. And if he finds one sin, one sin, you're rejected. So how do you know that? Because James chapter 2 verse 10 says, if you keep God's entire law but break it at one point, you become guilty of breaking the entire law. You say that's not fair. Yes, it is fair because the law is a standard. You mess up any part, the whole standard is broken. That's all that matters. With God, it's either 1,000% on your test or you fail. Say, so is that really true? Yes, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Wait a minute, nobody's perfect. You're right. We're all condemned. That's why we need a Savior. Because He lived the only perfect life. And then he offered that life up to pay for your sins. And then he rose from the dead. And then he ordered people, go preach to everybody in the world so they know how to get to God. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. You confess Jesus as Lord. You say, but I don't believe that I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you not think that God will judge you based upon heart motives when you stand before him? Men, have you ever lusted after a woman? Don't answer that because we already know the answer. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. There's two paths. One is to confess your sin and receive forgiveness of sins. The other is to say you're not a sinner, you're not guilty, you're fine on your own. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I would rather go the other route. Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be willed. God, God will forgive it all. Colossians 1:14: "In Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins." Does it say that in the Christmas carols also? Yes, and loudly. Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day. What are you waiting for? Jesus is God's message. Are you listening? Well, you can't say now that you've never heard, because you have. This group in Cornelius' house listened. They received forgiveness of sins and much more. Keep reading. You'll see all that happened to them, and you can receive Christ into your life this very day simply, quietly, in your own prayer, in your own seat. Say, Lord, I know that what that book says is true. I am a sinner. I'm lost without Christ. And the only way I can get into your presence is through Jesus. I trust him. I believe in his resurrection. Please, would you receive this old fool or this young fool, as it may be? And he will. He'll forgive you today, and you'll be born in him. Merry Christmas to you. And may it be a day in which you can celebrate the new life of Jesus Christ in your heart. Would you stand for our closing? And um, I just want to say, as you leave today, would you please greet somebody, and would you not only wish them a Merry Christmas, but find out a little something about them, show them the love of Jesus Christ, and uh, and and maybe if you need to ask someone some questions about what you heard today, or even just get some answers to things that were not talked about today, um, please do that. You'll find a friendly face and someone probably that knows the Bible and can help you out. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for the love that you showed by sending your Son. I don't know that I could ever give up my Son for my enemies, and yet this is what you did. God, you're so loving and so giving and so generous. Forgive us for our sins. Help us to sing merrily and always be grateful to you. You are our God. You are our Savior, and we love you very much. Through Jesus Christ, we have prayed, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Merry Christmas to you.